0: Fundamental one, unique nutrition theory by Joshua Rosenthal. Unique nutrition theory, what makes IAN different from other nutrition schools? A unique perspective. There are seven core concepts of, of our nutrition education that distinguish IAN graduates from others in the field. Number one, focus on primary food. We have an understanding that being healthy is not just about the food in your plate. It is about the water you drink, the air you breathe, the love in your life, the amount you exercise, whether you have a fulfilling career, a spiritual practice, and so on. Primary food in the food you eat, which is the secondary, should be looked at together rather than separately. Number 2. Integration of all the different dietary theories You will learn the pros and the cons of each diet. From traditional to fab diets, you'll be introduced to a wide array of diets so that you are aware of all the theories and have options and a greater understanding for your clients and their needs. Number 3. Based on the individual, not on a theory People are hypnotized by theories. Nutrition information is often taken from the media. Newspapers, magazines, the internet, or books, and when a specific diet doesn't work for one person, it brings on a sense of failure. We teach that there is no one right diet that works for everyone. We encourage you to explore what works best for you and to trust your body. You can fail at the diet that you create for your unique self. Number 4. Crowding out by adding healthier foods into your diet, you will gently crowd out the one that no longer serves you. More fruits, vegetables, and water will naturally lead to less caffeine, sugar, and processed food. Number 5. Given half a chance, the body will heal itself by itself. We are a society who wants a pill for every ill. By slowing down and allowing yourself the rest you need, your body has the opportunity to heal on a deeper level. Number 6. Deconstructing cravings The body doesn't make mistakes. It is a super computer. your body maintains a healthy temperature, your heart never misses a bit, and your lungs never forget to breathe. If you are craving something, listen to your body and find healthy ways to satisfy the craving. Number seven, the same diet and lifestyle. Recommendations will help everyone get well, no matter the disease. Less milk, less meat, sugar, and chemicalized artificial food. Less coffee and alcohol, more fruits, vegetables, and whole foods. Appropriate protein, enough drinking water, adequate rest. Over the next year, you'll be introduced to many theories and ideas. Return to these core concepts when you need to get back to the basics.
1: Once your brain gets exhausted with all the different teachers and all the different theories, then there's nothing left. And eating becomes, listen, eating becomes a non-cerebral process. You return to the gift of being a mammal. And then you're like, oh, I can eat anything I want. I'm a mammal, and my own internal systems will self-correct, rebalance, find yin and yang. You're not gonna go out and do crazy things because you wanna have a wonderful life. But the switch, which frequently occurs at this point where you let go of, I gotta do everything completely perfectly right to I get it. I'm a mammal. Mammals have this built-in, hit and miss, primary food, overrides, secondary food anyway. I'm going to go, go get a few good hugs and eat whatever I want. And if you, as you watch that unfolding for yourself, as you watch that unfolding for your clients, it's, a, it's a, what I call it, it's like postmodern. It's something, a whole different realm of eating and living that inspires much more freedom. So if you catch yourself being confused, know that that's a good thing.
2: Hi there. Today I'm going to introduce you to your Dietary Theory Library. Your Dietary Theory Library is a collection of over 100 different dietary theories all in one place. It's an exciting resource because it arms you with a comprehensive understanding of the diet landscape. Our intention is to educate you so you can make your own decisions around food and lifestyle. Then, if you choose, coach others to do the same. We do not go into great depth on each diet because, ultimately, diets don't work. And no one way of eating works for everyone. Instead, we give you just the key points so you're familiar with diets and can speak to trends. We don't want to get you overwhelmed by diets or spend too much time learning them all in unnecessary detail. If you want to explore an eating style in depth, we absolutely support that and recommend you do outside research to learn more. We teach lifestyle transformation over diets and want to give you lifelong tools, not a quick fix. As a human, you naturally know how to feel yourself by simply eating real food, drinking water, and moving your body, with slight variations, of course. For example, some people can handle dairy while others can't. Nevertheless, diet obsession can quickly become a distraction from important personal growth work. The Dietary Theory Library gives you a lay of the land so you can experiment with different eating styles and find what works best for you. If you choose to work with clients and build a business, your clients will ask you about many different diets and want to experiment. And it's very valuable for you to be familiar with as many different diets as possible. With knowledge of over 100 diets, you can guide clients through the pros and cons and lead them to make a decision for themselves based on how different foods make them feel. You can find your Dietary Theory Library in your Learning Center. Simply log in, click Libraries on your main menu, then click Dietary Theory Library. You can refer to this resource anytime throughout the course and explore it at your own pace. You won't be tested on it, so use it for your enrichment and enjoyment, but don't stress over it. As you progress through the health coach training program and possibly start working with clients, you may want to share the dietary theory library, and that's awesome. You can definitely share the information you learn from it, but you cannot share the document verbatim. Instead, assimilate the information, make it your own, and share it with your friends, family, and or clients in your own unique ways. This protects our intellectual property and gives you creative freedom to share your knowledge of dietary theories in a way that's authentic for you and best supports the people you're sharing it with. Remember to never push diet information on anyone. Only share if they explicitly ask for it. You can lead by example, but you can never force a transformation. Everyone is learning and growing at their own pace. And as a leader and health coach, it's incredibly important to respect that. Okay, let's recap. Your dietary theory library provides an overview of more than 100 different dietary theories and our intention with it is to make you aware of the many different diets and inspire you to experiment with your bio-individual body to find what works best for you. You'll then be ready to share this information with clients if you choose. You can find your dietary theory library by logging into your learning center, then clicking libraries, and you can explore it at your own pace. You won't be tested on it. And lastly, please remember that although we encourage you to share the information you learn from the Dietary Theory Library, you cannot share any part of it or the entire document verbatim since it's our intellectual property. I hope this introduction to the Dietary Theory Library was helpful, and I can't wait for you to explore it. Enjoy.
3: Hey everyone, I'm Tara and I work in the education department here at IAM. I have a question for you. Have you ever noticed that when people talk about health, they tend to fixate on what they should be doing rather than what they are doing? I'm sure you've heard it a million times. A friend starts talking about how unhealthy they feel. And before you know it, the entire conversation has shifted into a shame spiral about not working out enough and eating out too often. Soon, you're chiming in with all the reasons that it's impossible to be healthy in their situation just to make them feel better. Have you ever stopped to wonder how this situation might play out differently if you encourage your friend to celebrate how their health improves with each and every step they take, rather than reinforcing how far away they feel from their goals? At its origin, the English word health comes from the old English word hail, meaning wholeness, being whole, sound, or well. This definition has evolved over the years, and today it is defined by the World Health Organization as a state of complete physical, mental, and social well-being, not just the absence of disease. So at its core, health is a dynamic concept, not a fixed outcome. Let's face it. I think we all know that it's impossible to achieve 100% perfect physical, mental, and social well-being 100% of the time. But it's difficult to remember that perfection isn't the goal when we're bombarded with messages all day long about how we should be. That's why we like to teach you that health is a journey, not a destination. It's all about taking small, attainable steps and enjoying the process. And it's less about the multivitamin that you forgot to take yesterday. Now, I know how hard it can be to shift your mindset to a place that honors the journey, especially if you're a results-oriented person. But I also know that the biggest breakthroughs come from a series of small steps that add up to big changes in the long term. This year, we recommend that you focus on making small adjustments to improve your level of wellness rather than getting caught up with making rules for yourself or beating yourself up when things don't go as planned. Remember, no one way of eating will work for everyone, so it may take some experimentation to find the steps that work best for your health and happiness. The key is sticking to a gradual introduction of basic changes and to experience a larger shift without much effort. Plus, you'll figure out what works for you with each small change that you make. Now, we've brainstormed a few steps to help you get started on your health journey this year. Experiment with drinking more water. Practice cooking. Experiment with whole grains. Increase your sweet vegetables. Increase leafy green vegetables. Experiment with protein. Eat fewer processed foods. Make a habit of nurturing your body. Have healthy relationships. Enjoy regular physical activity. Find work you love. Develop a spiritual practice. You can also find these suggestions on the 12 steps to better health tool included in this fundamental. Remember, these are simply suggestions of small steps you can take to improve your health. You don't need to follow the steps in any order. For now, I want you to pick one of the 12 steps and think about how you'll put it into practice this week. For example... If your goal is to drink more water, plan ahead to ensure your success. You might want to make an effort to carry a water bottle everywhere you go. Flavor your water with cucumber slices, drink from a fun straw, or download an app that lets you track your progress. Pause the video now and choose one of the 12 steps to better health to work on this week. Then write down an action plan to implement it.
0: 12 steps to better health. Health is a journey, not a destination. It's all about taking small attainable steps and enjoying the process. Below is the 12 steps to better health tool to help you take your first step to improve your own health and lifestyle. Pick one step and then go on to another when you're ready. You don't need to follow the steps in any particular order. Trust your instinct and know that each change you make has a tremendous impact on your present and your future. Number one, drink more water. Number two, practice cooking. Number three, experiment with whole grains. Number four, increase with vegetables. Number five, increase leafy green vegetables. Number six, experiment with protein. Number seven, eat fewer processed foods number eight make a habit of nurturing your body number nine have a healthier relationships number ten enjoy your regular physical activity number eleven find work you love number twelve develop a spiritual practice
4: i'm frank lipman and i'm a health coach addict Um, really (laughs) I'm addicted to health to health coaches Um, they've changed my life they've made me a much more effective practitioner uh, better teacher and after all doctors should be teachers and uh, I'd like to thank Joshua for actually putting this whole school together because I believe that you guys are in a unique position Uh, in this new medicine that's being created as we speak because as you all know we can't afford what's going on at the moment it's not particularly effective for most of the problems we're seeing and doctors aren't trained in nutrition so you guys are actually in a unique position to fill this void that we are in at the moment so um, I'm going to take you guys on a journey, on my journey, because when you hear my story it demonstrates how important you guys will be in this new medicine and how deficient western medicine is in, in a huge area. So I grew up in South Africa uh, during apartheid uh, and I became a doctor there in the late 70s and. During apartheid, everything was segregated, everything was separate. So whites lived separately to blacks. We, we had to eat in separate areas. Uh, we went to different schools. The hospitals were separate. And I chose to work in black hospitals. Um, and my first exposure to non-traditional medicine was actually at Baragwanath Hospital, um, which is the largest hospital in Africa, it's in Johannesburg, in Soweto. And what happened was when we doctors couldn't help the patients the family used to call in the Sangoma or the traditional healer and they used to call in the Sangoma and I noticed that sometimes these Sangomas helped the patients that we couldn't help but at that stage of my career I still thought it was primitive so I didn't really pay that much attention and after I finished my internship at Baragwanath I went to work at a mission hospital or in Kwandabele. Some of you may have heard of Kwandabele. They paint their houses these beautiful colours. They wear these beautiful beads. My job as a physician was to work at the hospital and to go to these outlying clinics in a in a jeep with a driver and see patients there as well. So at the hospital we were seeing really sick people people who had asthma, we had to put chest tubes in, we had to do caesarean sections, we had to do appendisectomies. We had to do the type of medicine I was trained in. It was acute care medicine, crisis care medicine. But at the clinics where we had to go to, it was set up that the nurses would see the patients and the doctor would come and assess if patients were sick enough to be sent to the hospital. And um, It was interesting that at these clinics, Nearby the clinics, there was a sangoma. And now I had more time to sort of see what the sangomas were doing. And I noticed that a lot of the patients that I would not take to the hospitals that that weren't sick enough, they were also seeing the sangoma. And this is Anna, who I worked with at one of the clinics. And I noticed that she was helping some of the patients. And... um, It was really interesting for me. And I realized when I was there that people believed in her and they believed in their treatment, in the Sangomas treatment. And maybe that's why they got better. And you know what, it's no different today. We believe in our doctors. Our doctors give us antibiotics for viral infections and we get better, even though antibiotics don't work against viruses. So I learned how important belief systems are. You know, we call it placebo effect now. But belief systems affect how you respond. Um, And I learned a lot while I was there. It was an unbelievable experience for a white boy being put into a situation that I'd never been exposed to, a completely different culture. Um, It was pretty amazing. And I I realized how important the cultural context of our medicine is. And um, there's an African term called Ubuntu which means what makes us human is the humanity we, we show each other. And I learnt about Ubuntu up there and although I was a white doctor in this black area and I was part of the system, this apartheid system, people took me in like I was family. They didn't have much food but they would always bring me in and, and feed me. So it was really an amazing experience. And. I realized how important the relationship between doctor and patient, Sangoma and patient was. Um, And you know, the Dalai Lama says, the three most important aspects of healing are the belief of the patient, the belief of the healer, and the karma, the relationship between the two. And that's really important, even to this day, I do a lot of acupuncture. I can often tell, usually tell before I put the needles in who's going to get better. And, you know, if we open to look for it, most cultures have traditional medicines. After all, most of our drugs come from traditional medicines. After I worked, I worked there for about 18 months. And then I went back into Johannesburg to work uh, in a private practice. So I started working in this practice in Johannesburg, um, and I was being mentored by an amazing doctor. And people were coming in, and they were tired, and they had headaches, and they were bloated, and they couldn't poop, and they couldn't sleep. And I went to Paul, and I said, what do I do? I'm not tra- this is not real medicine. I'm not trained to deal with these patients. You know, I'm, I'm used to really sick people in the hospital. This is not what I got trained in. And Paul said to me, one of the pearls that I've carried carried with me all this time. He said to me, your job is to see if they're sick enough to go to the hospital or if you really think that you're worried about them, you send them to a specialist. But you need to listen to patients. You need to listen to their stories and allay their fears. Because if someone walks out of your office and feels good about... the the relationship, their their visit, the chances are they'll get better in spite of the medicines that we give them. And Paul taught me to listen. Um, And what was interesting as well at that practice, because he used to see the alternative community in Johannesburg, people were coming in and they had seen the homeopath. Homeopathy was a big tradition there. Um, they had seen the one acupuncturist in Johannesburg, and they were telling me about their experiences and they were getting better from these problems that I couldn't help. I went, wow, that's interesting, here I'm trained as a doctor, these guys are quacks, and they're helping the, these people that I can't help. So I started studying homeopathy. and. Um, About a year or two, about 18 months after that, my wife and I decided we didn't want to live under apartheid anymore, so we're going to come to the United States. So when I left, Paul gave me a goodbye present, and it was the Barefoot Doctor's Manual. Does everyone know what the Barefoot Doctor's Manual is? Okay, for those who don't know what the Barefoot Doctor's Manual is, and I actually think you guys are the modern-day Barefoot Doctors, by the way. Um, the Barefoot Doctors' Manual was a, a manual developed uh, with, with the Cultural Revolution or the, the Revolution in China, where they used to train farmers or peasants to go into the rural areas and do basic medicines to cure basic illnesses. Um, they used to teach them prevention, uh, preventative medicine, because the doctors in the urban areas didn't want to go to these rural areas, and they called them Barefoot Doctors because these farmers used to walk barefoot through the fields. So he gave me this book, The Barefoot Doctor's Manual. I didn't think much of it and I landed in New York in 1984 and I had a job in internal medicine in the South Bronx. It was a pretty burnt out rough area full of heroin, crack and coke addicts. And these were the patients we were seeing in the wards and after a couple of weeks of my residency, I was extremely disillusioned with Western medicine and I said to my wife, I don't want to be a doctor here, I don't know what I'm going to do. Um, And that's because the medicine in South Africa was very different. In America, the medicine is very procedural. You take the bloods, you do the EKG, you do the chest x-ray, The patient goes up to the ward, you you look at all the results, you quickly go study in the books to see what's going on, and you present the case the next morning. There's no relationship that's encouraged with the patients. And that was different in South Africa because we couldn't afford to do all these tests. You had to sit with a patient and hear what was going on. We just couldn't afford to do all these tests on all the patients. So uh, I'd heard about this acupuncture clinic in the South Bronx. Well, it was actually quite well known, it was attached to the hospital and I thought well I'm going to check this acupuncture clinic out. Paul gave me barefoot doctor's manual, I don't want to be a doctor here, I'm going to check out this acupuncture clinic. So I walk a couple of blocks from the hospital um, to the clinic and I walk into this burnt out building and I see these addicts sitting quietly with needles in their ears. These are the same patients that I'm dealing with in the wards that are ripping out their IVs, they're shouting, they're screaming, they're really difficult patients to deal with. And here they're sitting quietly with needles in their ears. So I said, I've got to check this out. This is really fascinating. So I went upstairs and um, I spoke to to, uh, Mike Smith who ran the clinic and I told him my position and he took a liking to me. He said, you can come and hang out here whenever you want and study acupuncture. So, for the next three years of my life, um, I would live two completely separate lives. At the hospital, I was being trained like a mechanic to see the body like a machine. It was heroic and dramatic. I was taking, you know, we were doing, you know, radical stuff. We were treating acute heart attacks, acute asthmatic attacks. It was really effective for what these patients were coming in for. But after we had finished treating them, there was no way or there was nothing that we could do to actually create health in these people. We had no tools. We had drugs or surgery. At the Chinese medicine clinic, I was being taught to see the body as a gardener, as a garden, and I was the gardener. If the plant wasn't getting enough water, you look to see why the patient wasn't flourishing, why the plant wasn't flourishing. Was it getting enough sun? Was it getting enough water? Were the roots being impinged upon? You didn't just paint the leaves green, you see why the leaves were going yellow. It was a completely different way of looking at the body. And What was very, very obvious, even then, was these two medicines worked for different types of patients. Western medicine is fantastic at trauma and at acute infections and at replacing joints or replacing organs, um, but it's not particularly good at the chronic diseases, at, at helping patients with their diet, with stress. So it was pretty obvious for me to see that Chinese medicine was really good at these things and actually weak at the things that Western medicine was good at, and Western medicine was wonderful at crisis care, but pretty useless at what Chinese medicine was good at. So I knew then what I was going to do. I was going to somehow mix these two medicines together. This was in the mid-80s, but I didn't really know how. So I start, after I finished my residency, I got a job in a, a clinic on the Lower East Side and they wanted me to start acupuncture and start doing alternative. They actually had a nutritionist there. So I went to work there and the nutritionist, Susan Luck, who was one of my first nutrition mentors, um, told me about a guy, Jeff Bland. Has anyone ever, if you haven't heard of Jeff Bland, yeah, he needs... He is the most significant person who's changing the healthcare system at the moment. Now, Jeff Bland, who is, no, who is probably best known as the father of functional medicine. I went to hear Jeff speak, and it was like a religious experience. Because he was saying, articulating, exactly what I was feeling. But he was mixing Western, the Western and, and Eastern concepts together. He had taken the biochemistry and physiology of Western medicine and combined it with a holistic perspective of Chinese medicine of creating balance of an improving function. And then the genius that he is had overlaid that with the latest scientific research on how our genes, environment and lifestyle all interact with each other. So Jeff just blew me away and I knew I had found a home and I knew all the struggles I was having to put all of this together, someone had actually done it for me. So I started practicing functional medicine. And this is my functional medicine tree. And this explains functional medicine really well, or explains medicine really well. In Western medicine, we treat the leaves. We have a disease model. We like naming diseases. So we call it cancer. We call it heart disease. We call it osteoporosis. We give it a name. In functional medicine, we look at the trunk. What are the underlying disease mechanisms? What are the underlying dysfunctions that are causing these diseases? And ultimately, we want to look at the root causes. And one of the commonest underlying disease mechanism or dysfunction is inflammation. And that's now almost universally accepted as a common mechanism of many, many diseases. In Western medicine, we may call it heart disease or asthma or Alzheimer's or even cancer. Many cancers are actually inflammatory diseases. Um, And and what happens in Western medicine is we play whack-a-mole. So, the disease pops up somewhere and we whack it with a drug, only for it to pop up somewhere else and then we whack it with another drug. And because we're not treating the underlying disease mechanism, people get sicker and sicker. And to make it Worse, we actually give them different drugs for different conditions. So they get side effects from the drugs and then we give them a different drug to treat those side effects. So we see patients slowly going downhill on multiple drugs and it's a problem. And what I really want to get through to you today is one of the key underlying disease mechanisms is actually digestive dysfunction. So digestion is a really key dysfunction. And why, why is that? Because 70% of your immune system is in your digestion, in your digestive system. Your digestion is also called your second brain. All the chemicals made in your brain are made in digestion in your digestive tract too. Inflammation, one, probably one of the commonest triggers for inflammation is an imbalanced digestion. Your digestive tract, think of this, this this always fascinates me. Your digestive tract is one of the most important areas where you come in contact with the external world. You know, you have your skin and you think about that. But your digestive tract is really the skin of your internal system. And it's an extremely thin layer, it's often one cell thick. So when that gets damaged, you are exposed to the external world. And we all know what a screwed up external world we have and lastly your digestion your digestive system holds more bacteria in it than you have cells in your body you have 10 times more bacteria in your digestive system than you have cells in your body you have a whole organ system down there so we're talking about a huge organ system that's actually completely ignored not completely but Almost completely ignored in Western medicine, and digestive dysfunction can present in many different ways. Can present as arthritis, autism, autoimmune diseases, anxiety, and that's just the A's. So, so, so no, but ser- seriously, it can present in any organ system. And what I do in my practice, and I have some my health coaches here, I mean, I, where I start is the digestive system most of the time. And in Chinese medicine you get taught digestion is the earth element, it's the center. When digestion is off, everything is off. I had a, an, herbal, uh, an herbalist teacher many, many years ago, Simon Mills, who is a famous herbalist from England, who always used to teach us, when you don't know what's going on, treat digestion. Every tradition does that. If they don't know what's going on, treat the digestion. And that's what I do in my practice. Most people who come in, I usually start with digestion. Because digestion is usually a problem for most people. And this is one of the key things I learned from Jeff many, many years ago. This is one of the pearls of functional medicine. The 4R program. So remove, replace, re repair. The first thing you do, anyone who comes in and sees you, and this will fit right into what you do, is you remove the foods that could be triggering inflammation or any, any type of problem. So we usually put people on an elimination diet. We take out the common foods that are a problem. Sugar, gluten, dairy are the big ones. But soy can be a problem. Eggs sometimes, although I love eggs, whole eggs, organic eggs. But eggs can be a problem. We take out all the junk. uh, But you remove any food that could be a problem. And most, even non-functional medicine people will do that. But the second part of the R is to me the key, the key of my success with my patients. It's removing the bad bacteria or the yeast or the parasites in the gut. Most people I see have what we call now a dysbiosis, an imbalance in the good and the bad bacteria. And although we need to reinoculate the third eye and give good bacteria, you have to kill the bad bacteria. You have to kill the bad guys, because if there are too many bad guys, the good guys can't actually get to where they need to get to. So you need to kill the bad guys. Um, and a couple of you know, grapefruit seed extract, olive leaf extract, berberine, there are, lots of, there are lots of formulas that do this, but it's really important to kill the bad guys. The second R is replace. You replace, you, you use, you replace enzymes, digestive enzymes, everyone knows that. And you replace hydrochloric acid which everyone is scared to do and most people who have GERD symptoms who have reflux symptoms it's actually not from too much acid it's often from too little acid especially in older people so as a rule of thumb if someone comes to you and is over 50 and they have symptoms of of reflux it's actually because they don't have enough acid not too much and given, they get given that crap, the nexium and all that nonsense which creates other problems. And often all they need is a bit of hydrochloric acid or giving the, give them some apple cider vinegar which will stimulate their digestion. So that's the replace. You need to replace the enzymes, the hydrochloric acid that's missing. Reinoculate. I mean, I could do a whole talk on reinoculate. I mean, there's, has everyone heard about the microbiome? It's basically uh, all these bacteria we're talking about and and how they affect your health. So you need to reinoculate the good guys as well. And um, you know, there's so many different bacteria. I, I'm not you know it's it's a, at the moment it's a crapshoot we don't really know exactly what people need how they're going to respond because everyone's different and what i've just learned recently because when i take a history i find out you know did you take did you have antibiotics when you're a kid but it starts from pregnancy from delivery and kids who've had cesarean sections do not get the flora of the vaginal area of their mothers and those kids already start off Um, immune depressed or not having the right flora. So cesarean sections, are, are we're finding out, are a huge problem. Breastfeeding, you'll get the right flora and all these bad things that we've thought were good in Western medicine, we're finding out more and more, are actually creating harm that we're suffering with in our adulthood. The poor kid gets a cesarean section because the doctor doesn't want to deliver it at midnight or whatever and the kid's going to suffer possibly for the rest of his life it's actually criminal but that's another story so repair you also have to repair the lining of the gut repair because we talked about that very thin lining that gets damaged so you need to use nutrients that repair the lining and glutamine is the main nutrient that we use to repair the lining So treating the gut and using this four-hour program is really, really important. And I love this quote from Wendell Berry, people are fed by the food industry which pays no attention to health and are treated by a health industry which pays no attention to food. And this, guys, is where you got fit in. Because you can be this go-between, between the health industry, the food industry. Health coaches, I think, need to be on the forefront of this wellness revolution. You need to be in doctor's offices, not only functional medicine practitioner's offices. My health coaches are fantastic. As I said, they've changed my life. They actually help my patients adapt these lifestyle changes. And a lot of what we're doing is helping people change their lifestyles. And in the old days, I used just, to just say, OK, stop eating gluten, stop eating sugar, bye, here's a diet. And that's not as effective if I have as a health coach actually helping them with recipes and the, the how-tos. So they've been enormously helpful in my practice, and I think health coaches be, could be incredibly helpful with any doctor's practice. It's really nice speaking to people who actually uh, who actually believe in the same thing. So. So you are going to have to go into doctor's offices and actually start educating their patients on how to eat properly, how to eat whole foods, not low fat and whatever. As my story shows, there's this huge void in Western medicine. And in Western medicine, we have this hubris that we know everything about health when we're clueless about nutrition and how it affects health. If we want to change the way medicine is practiced here, you need to Get out there. We need to change our disease care system into a healthcare system. And as my man, Madiba Nelson Mandela says, it always seems impossible until it's done.
5: Hello, my friends. IIN offers you an extraordinary diversity of insights and perspectives. My self-appointed mission is to make sure that across that expanse of diverse perspectives, you can nonetheless see the big picture, or if you will, the proverbial elephant in the room. It was six men of Indistan, to learning much inclined, who went to see the elephant though all of them were blind, that each by observation might satisfy his mind. The first approached the elephant and, happening to fall, against his broad and sturdy side at what's began to bawl, God bless me, but the elephant is very like a wall. The second feeling of the tusk cried, "Ho! Oh, what have we here? So very round and smooth and sharp to meet tis mighty clear. This wonder of an elephant is very like a spear. The third approached the animal and, happening to take the squirming trunk within his hands, thus boldly up and spake, I see, quoth he, the elephant, is very like a snake. The fourth reached out an eager hand and felt about the knee. What most this wondrous beast is like is mighty plain, quoth he. Tis clear enough, the elephant is very like a tree. The fifth, who chanced to touch the ear, said he and the blindest man, can tell what this resembles most, deny the fact who can this marvel of an elephant is very like a fan. The sixth no sooner had begun about the beast to grope than seizing on the swinging tail that fell within his scope, I see, quoth he, the elephant, is very like a rope. And so these men of Indistan disputed loud and long, each in his own opinion, exceeding stiff and strong, though each was partly in the right and all were in the wrong. So often, theologic wars, the disputants I ween, rail on in utter ignorance of what each other mean and prate about the elephant not one of them has seen. Folks, I want you to see the elephant in the room or worded differently as we think about the importance of the big picture past the disassembled bits. If we are to escape the dark wood of modern epidemiology, we must see the forest through the trees so it is our mission today to get out of the dark wood and we could argue that the dark wood of modern epidemiology is a place where chronic diseases kill people and kill them prematurely heart disease cancer stroke diabetes respiratory disease but a new perspective was offered in 1993 in 1993 folks chronic diseases stopped killing people and the causes of the chronic diseases took over. Because McGinnis and Feige published the seminal paper in JAMA called Actual Causes of Death in the United States and said, chronic diseases are not causes, they are effects. What we want to know is effects of what, because that's the stuff we can fix. And they identified a list of 10 factors that account for virtually all of the premature deaths in the United States every year, but for a rounding error. And what matters most to us about this list of factors is that they contain things that each of us can change in our own lives, and those several we can't each change, we can all change. Sometimes the best defense of the human body resides with the body politic. Sometimes what we cannot do alone, we can only do together. But everything on this list is modifiable, either by each of us or by all of us. And as interesting as the full list of 10 is, it need not concern us here this afternoon because it was overwhelmingly dominated by just the first three entries. The leading causes of premature death in the United States each year in 1990 were tobacco, poor diet, and lack of physical activity. 80% of the premature deaths every year in the country were attributable to bad use of feet, forks, and fingers. This was the dark wood in 1990, we probably want fresher data, we have them. 10 years later, Ali Makdad and others at the CDC reanalyzed this issue, same conclusion. All that had changed in the span of a decade is that the gap between tobacco is the number one cause of premature death and the combination of bad use of feet and forks is number two it had narrowed. It had narrowed for one good reason, less smoking, and one bad reason, deteriorating use of our feet, degenerating use of our forks, worsening epidemics of obesity and diabetes, to show for it. Even 2000, though, is getting to be an old vintage. We have fresher data. 2009, Earl Ford and colleagues published results of survey research conducted among 23,000 people in and around Potsdam, Germany. They asked 23,000 people about four factors in their lives. They asked them, do you smoke, yes or no? Do you eat well, yes or no? When Dr. Ford and colleagues asked 23,000 people, do you eat well, yes or no? all they really used to distinguish yes from no was habitual intake of vegetables fruits and whole grains and if you take away nothing else from my talk this afternoon take this with you it was enough it was enough despite all the discord and din the fractious bickering in our society about my diet can beat your diet a new diet every day worry about this no forget about that worry about the new thing Habitual intake of vegetables, fruits, and whole grains was enough. Enough for what? Tell you in a sec. They asked, do you smoke, yes or no? Do you eat well, yes or no? Are you physically active, yes or no? And is your weight well controlled, yes or no? They went on to compare the two ends of the spectrum. They compared, I don't smoke, I eat well, I'm active, my weight is fine. Do I smoke, eat badly, don't exercise, my weight's not so great? These people, over the span of their lifetime, This is a retrospective cohort study. Had an 80% lesser rate of all major chronic disease than these people. Flip the switch from bad to good on any one of these factors, and the lifetime probability of all major chronic disease went down 50%. But fire on all four cylinders, and the lifetime probability of any major chronic disease went down a stunning 80%. 80% less heart disease, cancer, stroke, diabetes, dementia, the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune. Imagine if a pill could do that. Imagine if a drug company had a patent for a pill that could do that. Imagine if the pill were available in bountiful supply, stunningly free of side effects, shockingly inexpensive, safe enough for children and octogenarians alike. There is no such pill. Lifestyle is exactly that medicine. We've known about it since 1993 at least. If you happen not to like Potsdam for any particular reason, or prefer your data even fresher, exactly these findings reaffirmed by Kavavik et al. in a cohort study in the UK a few years ago, more recently still here in the US by McCullough et al., and the drumbeat of this just keeps on keeping on. Fresher data, just from last year, this same cluster of lifestyle factors prevented four out of five heart attacks in high-risk men. There's that 80% reduction again. Similar benefits seen with colorectal cancer. Let's not leave women out of the mix. Same lifestyle factors, same 80% reduction in the rate of MI, this time in high-risk women. It's a repetitive drumbeat, my friends, in the peer-reviewed literature spanning literal decades about the incredible power of this short and stunningly simple list of lifestyle factors. Habitual intake of vegetables, fruits, and whole grains was enough to differentiate between those who had 80% less and those who had 80% more lifetime burden of chronic disease. And the beat of this drum reverberates to within the double helix of DNA itself. This study by my friend Dean Ornish and colleagues enrolled 30 men with early stage prostate cancer. Rather than just watch and wait to see if the cancer would progress, Dr. Ornish and colleagues gave gave these men the benefit of lifestyle as medicine. An optimal plant-based diet, routine physical activity, obviously no tobacco, and in addition, plenty of good sleep, stress mitigation, strong social interactions. Feet, forks, fingers, sleep, stress, and love. That's the six cylinder engine of lifestyle as medicine. You get those six right after that, everything is vanishingly less important. They got all six right, and over a span of months, they studied not so much the men, and not so much the cancer in the men, but preferentially the genes in the men with the cancer, and this lifestyle intervention took 500 cancer promoter genes and turned them off, dramatically down-regulated their expression. 50 cancer suppressor genes and dramatically up-regulated their expression. The power of lifestyle as medicine is such that it can refashion our fate at the very level of our genes. The nature-nurture debate is yesterday's news. We can nurture nature. And this is not one study, it's a whole branch of the literature filling up fast. So I think the case can be made, and indeed dare hope the case has been made, that the master levers of medical destiny are not the tools of the medical trade, and nothing at the cutting edge of biomedical advance. Not PET or SPECT or functional MRI, not robotic surgery. The master levers of medical destiny were in our hands all along. They're what we do each day with our feet, our forks, and our fingers. And I trust you know what Archimedes said about a lever. Give me one long enough and I can move the whole world. Make no mistake, these levers are long enough and should long since have served to move the whole world of modern epidemiology and public health to a better place. But alas, we like to say knowledge is power would that it were so. The gap between what we know and what we do with what we know belies that wishful thinking. So my friends, it's important that we're here together today. It's important that you use words like inspired and energetic and courageous because the arduous miles of translation lie ahead of us all. Translating what we know, indeed what we have long known, into what we at last routinely do and we must go those miles we must be inspired and righteous and true and courageous and indefatigable we must because the cost of the status quo is too much to bear there are many ways to characterize it one good one is the trends in obesity i trust you've seen these maps from the cdc And those of you who have know that color change is bad. It means more obesity. This was 1985. This is 1995. This is 2010. This is 2013. My friends, it falls to you to get a handle on this problem before or after Crayola runs out of colors for the CDC (laughs) to keep making more maps. And the reason, by the way, for all of us to care about obesity is not because it matters to us what we see in the mirror. I bet it does. I think that's fine. But as a public health physician, I care about epidemic obesity because it is a canary in the coal mine of chronic disease. Where there is more obesity, there is more cancer. Where there is more obesity, there is more stroke. There is more heart disease. There is more arthritis. There is more dementia. And most indelibly, there is more diabetes. So the trends in diabetes, 1994 to 2010, are in lockstep with the trends in obesity. And while we have been in the frying pan, for quite some time. All signs indicate we're headed toward the fire. Just a few years back, CDC projected that by or about the middle of this century, should current trends persist? Should we not fix what ails us? One in three Americans will be diabetic. There are 28 million di- diagnosed diabetics in the US right now. One in three would be 100 million. Imagine living under those conditions. And a couple of years after the projection was made, data were gathered to indicate, yep, we're spot on we are on course to hit that target. We have evidence that the mortality toll of obesity is higher than previously recognized, why? Because old people are the ones who tend to die. And people dying old in the world today did not grow up in a world of epidemic childhood obesity. If you look at successive birth cohorts and people who spent more of their lives exposed to obesity, the mortality toll goes up. And that's what masters and colleagues told us The rate of diabetes is not just rising, it's rising preferentially briskly in young people. And this is more of a travesty than you may realize because many of you are young people and are growing up in a world where we talk about type 1 and type 2 diabetes and everybody can get both. And you don't know that a generation ago we talked about juvenile onset diabetes and adult onset diabetes and that was a condition children did not get. And when they started getting it routinely, we didn't say we must do everything to fix this. We changed the name to make it okay. So you now think type 2 diabetes is a condition of children too. But it ought not to be so. And oh, by the way, one in three Americans diabetic, that's an underestimate. Oops, looks like it'll be 40%. And in ethnic minorities, 50%. Similar trends around the world. There are two things to think about here. One is, There's no way to pay this bill, is there? Think about the hullabaloo in this country over health care reform, it's mostly about money. Well, I submit to you that if we have 150 million diabetics in the United States by 2050, we will be insolvent. And the same will happen to any country that follows in our footsteps. I know you signed up to do what you could do to improve health using nutrition, but we are on the front lines of homeland security, my friends, fate of the nation hangs in the balance here. But that's not the worst of it. Who will the adults be in 2050, among whom 120 million to 150 million will be diabetic? It's not you and me. It's our children and our grandchildren. We stand on the brink of bequeathing to the next generation a blighted future. And I say to you, it cannot come to pass. Let us do all that is required to make sure we do not bequeath to our children and grandchildren a blighted future. They deserve much better from us. And with regard to our children, the trends have been deplorable. They get adult onset diabetes routinely. They get ever more cardiac risk factors at every younger age. But though I have been a prophet of doom on this topic for 25 years now, even I did not foresee a 35% increase in the rate of stroke among children aged five to 14, but that's what we have here in the United States. Even as the rate of stroke in those 50 and older declines due to better detection and treatment of hypertension, and the only smoking gun on the scene to account for this is epidemic childhood obesity. Can you imagine anything more unconscionable than a stroke in an 11 year old? that a societal commitment to better use of feet and forks would have prevented. My friends, this is the dark wood of modern epidemiology, or if you will, the dark clouds above the wood. And you may be wondering, where is the silver lining because this is getting depressing as hell? So I'm pleased to say, sorry about that, rather a lugubrious start to a talk. I know, but it's always dark as just before the dawn. There is a silver lining. It is as luminous as the clouds are dark. If knowledge were power, if lifestyle were medicine, I could say to you we could eliminate 80% of all heart disease in the world today. 80%, not controversial. We could eliminate 90% of all diabetes. Forget about going from 28 million diabetics in the US to 120 million, we could eliminate 90% the 28 million, similar benefits around the world. We could eliminate up to 60% of all cancer, similar benefits across all other chronic conditions. I could say this to you and cite the peer-reviewed literature to back me up, and in fact, I am doing exactly that. And the problem here is when I show you this slide, I bet I haven't brought a tear to any eye in the room or a lump to any throat, which either means that you are tearless, lumpless, insensitive wretches, or that we have another problem. I think it's the latter. You seem like very nice people. The problem is, as stunning as these statistics are, they are statistics. Dull, dry, bland, and anonymous. I've worked in public health for a long time and have come to recognize that the whole endeavor is encumbered by a potentially crippling fiction. For you see, there is no public. The public is nameless, the public is faceless, The public is impossible to love. There is no public. There's just you and me and everybody else. And I think we can prove it here. If you or someone you love has been affected by heart disease, those of you here in the room with me, please raise your hand and keep it in the air. Just you or someone you love, keep your hands up. If you or someone you love has been affected by cancer, heart disease, stroke, diabetes, hands up, look around the room. Then look back at me, put your hands down, I'll be your proxy, conjure to your mind's eye the face of the person that made you raise your hand. And remember that day, the phone call, maybe you were right there, maybe you were far away, maybe you rode the ambulance, maybe you went to the hospital later, maybe it was the emergency room, maybe it was the ICU, maybe it was the CCU, and maybe they got better and came home, and maybe they never did. Sometimes they do, sometimes they don't. But folks, here's the thing. I just listed the four major chronic diseases in modern culture. And they've invaded, I think, every one of our homes and every one of our families. And if knowledge were power, if we get the job done, what it would mean is that eight out of 10 of us in this very room, ask this question a generation from now would not have cause to raise our hands. That's what an 80% reduction in all chronic disease feels like. It's not remote, it's not anonymous, it's up close, and it's intensely personal. When you part the veil of statistical anonymity, the faces we see looking back at us are the faces of people we know and the faces of people we love. We all have literal skin in the game. It is for them that the miles of translation, turning what we know into what we do, must be traversed however arduous they prove to be. It is for them that the promise of this must be kept.